All right. Uh, good afternoon and welcome to the February 8th, 2021 uh, Major Mondays webinar series. Uh, I am Chris Major and we're going to be talking about defending HIMP-1 claims in New York. So as always, this is a live question and answer webinar. So if you have any questions, go ahead and type them in the box. Uh, and at the conclusion of the presentation, we'll get to them. So I figured we'd start off talking about what is the hemp process to begin. So where this comes from is the carrier's responsibility to pay for work-related medical treatment under section 13A, uh, and then 13D and 13H uh, actually lay out the process through which health insurers can get reimbursed. Now, the hemp rules and regulations are actually codified in uh, Title 12, Section 325-5, Section 325-6. Uh, anyone familiar with those number ranges knows that, uh, like the medical treatment guidelines fall under Section 324. Uh, all of the workers' comp medical treatment stuff falls in that range. Uh, so the HIMP process, which actually stands for Health Insurance Matching Program, and we'll get into why it's called that in a moment, uh, it is the process through which health insurers can get reimbursed for treatment that should have been covered by workers' compensation. Uh, so why is this a problem? Well, uh, it can result in significant back-end exposure, and I'll paint a brief picture here. Uh, let's pretend for a moment uh, that you have your lowest law firm attorney, uh, and they do what they always do and do a bang up job for you and uh, they get the case dismissed or uh, maybe, well, not dismissed uh, because that would be a finding of liability. But let's say we get a really favorable Section 32 settlement, you know, for only $10,000. Uh, the case was accepted, but we managed to settle it for pretty low value. Awesome. Great. Everybody uh, washes their hands clean of this mess and everyone moves on to the next file. And then three years later, a bill comes through the door for treatment on the data loss in the emergency room for an emergent cervical fusion surgery for $150,000. And you thought this claim was dead, done, and dusted. And now all of a sudden, here's this back-end exposure that you never saw coming. Uh, well, there are ways to safeguard against this. There are ways to see it coming. Uh, and most importantly, there are ways to defend against these. Uh, and we'll get into that over the course of this presentation. So how does it work? Uh, well, this is why it's called the matching program. So what happens is the board is going to collect data. Uh, they just collect it continuously. Uh, and assuming the health insurer uh, submits their electronic required info for a search, uh, the board will conduct these computer searches at least quarterly. They will also conduct them upon request. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment as well. What kind of data are we talking about? Claimant social security number, name, sex, date of birth, date of treatment, date of accident, et cetera. So there's two types of conceivable matches. A full match is when the board's data and the health insurer's data match enough to create a quote unquote reasonable basis for the board to conclude that they are the same person. Uh, a partial match means there's some kind of overlap, but not enough to get that reasonable basis standard going. So how does it start? So when the health insurer gets a full match, the board will give them basically everything that you can find on eCase, uh, especially on just like the case information tab. Uh, they're gonna get the WCB number, the carrier case number, the data loss, claimant SSN, uh, the, you know, they, they will get everything that you will be able to see on eCase. Uh, they also have access to the entire board file. Uh, a partial match will only get them the carrier code, carrier case number, and they'll tell them what fields didn't exactly match. Uh, the board is supposed to respond to these uh, re and return search requests within 30 days of receipt. 
so if anyone's seen the hemp one form and we're going to look at that in a second you might be asking yourself if they're serving this on me and they're asking for reimbursement isn't the date of the reimbursement request the date it was served aren't those two one and the same the answer is no uh, I don't know why they phrased it like this. I don't know why they didn't just call it date of search. Uh, but on the HIMP-1 form, when it says date reimbursement request filed, that is the date the health insurer submitted the data to the board looking for a match. Uh, the health insurer absolutely must have a full match before, before serving the HIMP-1 form. Uh, why is this important? Uh, we're not going to name any, uh, any recovery uh, agencies, but uh, there have been some, let's just call them legal shenanigans going on, where uh, these uh, recovery companies are using ISO matches as a basis to serve the report. Uh, not good enough. You need a full match under the statute from the board. So this is the HIMP-1 form, and hopefully everyone can see uh, my mouse. This is the field I was talking about right here, date request for reimbursement filed. Uh, that is the date that they're going to file it with the board looking for a match. Uh, and then the date of the full or partial match will go here. Uh, the health insurer fills out all of this top part. Uh, you'll notice there's something very important down here just above their signature line. It's kind of tucked in there and hidden. Copy of this notice was mailed to the carrier on the, on the date uh, indicated below and proof of service is attached. Now that's kind of important because we're going to get into objections in a little bit. Uh, when you object, your objection has to go on part two. You can include whatever you want with it, whatever evidence, whatever documentary support, uh, but your objection is defective unless this HIMP1 form with part two filled out all the way goes back to the health insurer. So the health insurer receives your objection and what do they do? Well, I think we all could have guessed this ending. Uh, they fill out part three, and then they file it with the American Arbitration Association looking for uh, arbitration. So what are the requirements on the HIMP-1 form itself? So you can find these in section 325-6.3 of the HIMP rules and regulations. Uh, they have to have filed the reimbursement request. Again, remember, that's the date of submission of data to the board looking for a match, uh, or have received a full match within three years of the date of payment for services. Uh, that's not the date of treatment. It is the date that they actually pay for the services at issue. Thereafter, uh, the HIMP-1 form itself has to be served within one year of the latest of ANCR or acceptance of the claim, the date of the full match, uh, the date of payment, or the HIMP rules and regulations effective date, which is June 1st, 2016. Uh, so practically, that one's never going to be a basis for timeliness anymore. Uh, section 325-6.3c lays out all of the required information that has to go on the HIMP-1 form itself, uh, and it's pretty detailed uh, what's actually required. They need to make sure that they have uh, provider bills or other documentation, and what they'll do is they'll hang their hat. Uh, when I say they, I mean some of these uh, subrogation and uh, health recovery companies. They'll hang their hat on that other documentation uh, portion of uh, 6.3c basically saying my payment ledger is good enough to get reimbursed. Uh, sad news is the American Arbitration Association agrees with them quite frequently. Doesn't mean we can't uh, object on that basis, but they need uh, ICD-10 codes, CPT slash DRG codes. They need the amounts charged by the providers. Uh, they need to include proof of ANCR or acceptance of the claim. Uh, they have to have one or the other before they can even serve the form. Uh, so it's all pretty laid out explicitly um what each uh 
what uh, is required to go on the HIMP1 form itself. Uh, and then the health insurer, like I just mentioned, they need proof of ANCR or acceptance, uh, as well as proof of service. Uh, so they need to be able to show that they mailed this form to the carrier as required. Uh, so we get an opportunity to investigate, and uh, I cannot uh, I cannot state the importance of this one uh, enough. This is very, very, very important and very, very useful. We're allowed to get the records from the provider. Uh, why does this matter? Well, the reason you never see these hemp one coming, these hemp ones coming, is because most of the time the treatment records are not filed with the board. Had they been filed with the board, we probably would have paid them instead of the health insurer. So you're not going to really have any basis for what, uh, why they're demanding reimbursement other than what they tell you the treatment was in the form of ICD-10, CPT, or DRG codes. So the provider has to supply the records if we make a written demand within 14 days. Uh, if they don't, they may be subject to a potential uh, Section 13D penalty. What is that? Uh, it's a removal from the list of board-authorized providers. That's going to be the most common slap on the wrist. Uh, you, if, if they don't respond, you are allowed to issue a subpoena ducis tecum to the health provider under Section uh, 119 of the Workers' Comp Law. Uh, and the statute says, or the regulation rather, um, that the health insurer can't refuse to modify filing deadlines uh, or can't unreasonably refuse to modify them. So the carrier is permitted this opportunity to do the investigation. Uh, but the carrier cannot use a records request or saying that uh, they need the records before they pay the hemp one to delay reimbursement or arbitration. That's a specifically forbidden uh, objection. So speaking of objecting, uh, so our objection has to be served within 90 days of the HIMP1 service. That's gonna be right next to the signature under part one. Uh, the parties can agree in writing to extend that, uh, like I just mentioned, and the health insurer can't uh, unreasonably refuse to grant it. Uh, you have to object on the HIMP1 form itself in part two, we mentioned that earlier. Uh, but you still have to support your objections with documents or evidence. Uh, we are also required to include proof of service. And section 6.4b of the HIMP rules and regulations lays out what our specific objections are. <clears throat> so I'm just going to go through these very quickly because they're kind of self-explanatory. Uh, top objection, ANCR not established, case closed without acceptance, or ANCR or compensability is on appeal. Basically, we're not liable to pay if we haven't accepted the case or it hasn't been established. Uh, that only makes sense because we wouldn't be liable to pay under uh, the workers' comp case if that were the case anyway. Uh, untimely service per 6.2 or 6.3b. Remember those two operative time frames we talked about? Uh, they have to file the reimbursement request or they have to get uh, a match from the board within three years of the date of payment for services. Once they have that, uh, then they have to serve the HEMP1 form within one year of the latest of ANCR or uh, acceptance of the claim, uh, the date of payment for services, the effective date of the HEMP rules and regulations, uh, or the date they receive the full match from the board. Um, Payment on behalf of someone other than the claimant or lack of causal relationship. This is one of my personal favorites. Uh, if there's extensive prior treatment and uh, these injuries really didn't come into the workers' comp case at all, but the workers' comp case is actually established, uh, well, then there's a strong uh, lack of causal relationship argument, and we would make that same argument in front of the board ourselves. Uh, the treatment wasn't emergent and authorization was requested. What are we talking about here? 
uh, your MG2s typically. Uh, we'll talk about C4 auths in a minute because uh, the HIMP rules and regulations deal with them kind of uh, kind of funky. Um, but uh, the treatment was non-emergent and authorization was requested and denied by the carrier and no review was sought or by the WCLJ or the board. Uh, the fee in excess of the workers' compensation medical fee schedule or proper amount can't be determined. Uh, you have to support how you arrived at this. Uh, there are outside vendors that will do this calculation for you. Uh, that is highly, highly recommended to include as an exhibit to your objection. If you're talking about really, really sort of big numbers, if you're knocking down a $300,000 HIMP-1 to a $70,000 HIMP-1, uh, you're definitely going to want to make sure someone's double-checking your work on the fee schedule, uh, and it's worth it to just have this outside vendor do it for you. The bill should have been prorated with another physician or provider. Uh, carrier cannot determine responsibility for payment from documents served. This one uh, is kind of a catch-all for things that are defective with the HIMP-1 itself. Uh, if they don't provide the date of payment for services, uh, we like to object if they don't tell us how much the uh, provider actually charged for the services. A lot of uh, a lot of these payment ledgers from uh, these subrogation groups will just say um, how much they paid for the treatment. And frankly, under the workers' compensation law and the HIP rules and regulations, we don't care about that. Uh, our liability for payment, just as it would be under the workers' compensation claim, is based on what's actually billed. Uh, so that's one basis to object under this can't determine from uh, documents served whether responsible for payment. Uh, another one is if they don't really fill out the HIMP-1 form to your satisfaction, because make no mistake, if they got a full match, they will have every single one of those boxes filled out in part one. Uh, I mean, the information is handed to them on a silver platter. It has to be filled out for that reason. Uh, and if it's not filled out, well, then it really starts to come into question if they filed a request for reimbursement with the board uh, or if they ever actually got the full match. So you can object on that basis, saying basically insufficient evidence of a full match because the HIMP-1 form was not completed. Uh, you can put that under this objection. Um, carrier previously paid provider or health insurer, uh, you do have to supply proof of payment. Uh, treatment that comes after a uh, full and final Section 32 or uh, even just a medical only Section 32, uh, that one's self-explanatory. We wouldn't be liable for payment. We'd file CA.1s if uh, the provider tried to bill us. The board would resolve it in our favor. That one, you know, just operates statutorily. Uh, a Section 29 offset, one of my personal favorites, uh, what with, um, you know, the uh, special place subrogation holds in my heart. Uh, that's when you have a third-party recovery by the claimant uh, and their net settlement proceeds are carried forward in the workers' comp claim, and you get an offset uh, for indemnity or medical. Uh, treatment inconsistent with the medical treatment guidelines, another biggie. Uh, this one requires knowing uh, about your MTGs, uh, and as I'm sure every, uh, every carrier and adjuster uh, is aware at this point, New York did uh, basically now every single injury or type of injury is covered under some form of medical treatment guidelines. It's no longer just the neck, the back, the shoulders, the knees, carpal tunnel. Uh, it's, you know, the, the foot's in there, the hands in there, all of that other stuff. So uh, this objection is going to become much, 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 much more common going forward. So the catch-all objection and the prohibited objections. So you can interpose any objection that demonstrates that the request for reimbursement should not be made unless it's specifically prohibited. 
so what do I put under that particular objection? You'll see on the HIMP1 form itself under part two, there's number 12 and it says other, uh, and then it says explain. Um, what's a good one to put there? Defective service. They're required to include uh, proof of ANCR or acceptance of the claim. If you just get a HIMP1 form and a payment ledger, that's a defective HIMP1. Uh, under section 6.3C, they're required to include proof of ANCR or acceptance. Uh, so this catch-all is a, is a good one to make um, this argument about defective service or form of the HIMP1 itself. Uh, the case is not eligible for arbitration if ANCR isn't established or the claim is not accepted. Uh, what you can't object based on, and remember I said we'd talk about C4 auths in a little bit, uh, here's where we're going with this. No prior authorization under WCA, uh, WCL section 13-A5. Uh, if you go and you look at that particular section, it references uh, special services costing in excess of $1,000. So uh, as we know, uh, for special services in excess of $1,000, the provider is required to file a C4 auth. What this uh, prohibition does is says basically that the carrier can object based on failure to obtain prior authorization simply because the treatment was too expensive. Uh, they don't want uh, the carrier and the health insurer duking it out over the fact that this costs more than $1,000 and you're technically allowed to require authorization on that basis. Now. Um, what does that leave open? Uh, treatment expressly requiring prior authorization under the medical treatment guidelines. That is not under 13-A5. Uh, those are those specific procedures that you will find on the C4 auth form uh, itself uh, or in the beginning of any one of the medical treatment guidelines. What are we talking about here? Uh, lumbar fusion, uh, arthroplasty, uh, things of that nature. So um, where would that objection fall in? Treatment inconsistent with the medical treatment guidelines, your number 11 objection. Uh, they are required to submit a C4 auth. They didn't, uh, and therefore that treatment is inconsistent with the guidelines because it's a procedure under the guidelines specifically requiring prior authorization. So don't let, the, don't let the health insurer tell you you're not allowed to object based on a failure to file a C4 auth. They're right if uh, the basis for filing the C4 auth was that special services costed in excess of $1,000. They're wrong if it's a procedure specifically requiring prior authorization under the MTGs. Uh, failure for provider to file required notices. What are we talking about here? Those are your C4s, C4.2s, MedNARs, uh, any one of those um, specific board forms. You can't object on that basis. Treatment excessive or too frequent, uh, unless it's inconsistent with the medical treatment guidelines, and hospitalization excessive or unnecessary, unless it's inconsistent with the medical treatment guidelines. <clears throat> so I'll just go into the uh, arbitration process briefly because uh, I don't want to tie up everyone's afternoon. Um, <clears throat> so arbitration, the designated forum for HIMP-1 claims is the American Arbitration Association. We'll call it the AAA going forward. Uh, it has its own rules for uh, hemp claims in addition to the hemp rules and regulations. I strongly, strongly advise reading over them if a case ever goes to arbitration because the service requirements change, uh, how the documents are to be submitted changes. For instance, the AAA case number has to go at the top of every single document submitted uh, by the carrier. Uh, oddly, they don't seem to require this of the health insurer. I'm not sure why. Um, but uh, there's specific rules for how documents are to be submitted to the arbitrator. 
what's required to be included when additional documents are submitted, um, how the oral hearing is going to be conducted, all of that is going to be governed by the AAA's own rules. So I strongly recommend taking a peek at those beyond the HIMP rules and regs uh, if a case goes to arbitration. Uh, so the health insurer has 90 days to request arbitration. And again, we talked about this earlier. They serve the HIMP 1 form with Part 3 completed. Uh, they need their supporting documents um, for the HIMP 1 arbitration. Uh, so what we include in our objections uh, is demand that our complete objection and all the exhibits we included therewith uh, has to be submitted as part of the health insurer's arbitration request. Most of them comply. If they don't, uh, we have to make sure that we actually submit it. Um, <clears throat> just a peek behind the curtain here. What we will do in, uh, in typical instances is prepare an actual objection brief uh, that lays out all of our objections in detail, what our general demands are in terms of uh, what the health insurer is required to produce, what they are required to send to the American Arbitration Association, uh, and then we include exhibits to that brief as our documentary support. Um, <clears throat> the health insurer has to give the AAA two copies of the HIMP-1 form and supporting documents. Again, they need proof of service on the carrier. Uh, and the AAA will send out an acknowledgement uh, of the receipt of request for arbitration. That triggers a 14-day period for the carrier to object based on improper or untimely service of the arbitration request uh, and to file two copies of all documents with proof of service on the health insurer. Uh, so basically, when you get that AAA acknowledgement, that's kind of your last bite at the apple uh, to send in things that you want to be considered at arbitration. Uh, an oral hearing, uh, I think we're going to get to this on the next slide or the one after. Uh, just note that the oral hearing has to be requested within 14 days uh, of the date the arbitration request is filed, not the date of acknowledgement. Oh, here we go, very first bullet point. Uh, so the health insurer can request uh, an oral hearing in their arbitration request itself. We are allowed to request one within 14 days of receipt of the health insurer's arbitration request. This is why they're required to include proof of service on us with their health uh, with their arbitration request because that triggers a 14-day timeline for us. Uh, the arbitrator can determine that the case is not eligible for or subject to mandatory arbitration. Uh, where would that come up? Most commonly, no ANCR or acceptance of the claim. Remember that the uh, case is not eligible for arbitration unless there's ANCR or acceptance. Uh, either party can present witnesses. Uh, spoiler alert, this happens very rarely. Uh, and can be represented by counsel. Uh, you can also have a court reporter record the hearing. You just have to provide notice to everyone. That might be helpful for appealing the award, uh, but the arbitrator is required to issue the award in writing. Uh, so most of what you're going to be appealing anyway is going to be in the written decision. Uh, where would we recommend doing this? In a very complex case with a lot of moving parts and a lot of exposure. Uh, any new objections or documents have to be served within 14 days of acknowledgement for a desk hearing, so no oral hearing was requested, or no, no later than 14 days before oral hearing, uh, and they have to be accompanied by an affidavit, uh, basically an affidavit of new evidence saying why this uh, couldn't have been submitted sooner, uh, and proof of service on the other party. So your, your drop-dead date is 14 days before the oral hearing. Um, just as a matter of course, I always recommend taking it to an oral hearing. It'll cost you, uh, unless, you know, the hemp one is for $100, you're not going to spend $500 to take it to an oral hearing. 
but if you're talking, you know, $2,000 or more, whatever your internal threshold might be, I always recommend requesting the oral hearing. Uh, it kind of puts the fear of God into these health insurers, lets them know that they're serious. Uh, and most of them are trying to get this reimbursement in bulk. You know, they're using these subrogation companies. They don't have time for an oral hearing. What they have time for is getting bulk matches from the board and hitting you with a thousand hit bonds and just hoping you'll pay on them. What they don't have time for is getting their counsel involved, their own internal counsel, or referring it out to counsel, uh, having them file the arbitration documents, all of that other stuff, uh, and appearing at arbitration uh, at an oral hearing. So uh, they'll balk a lot at the uh, oral hearing. And um, beyond that, why would you not give yourself the opportunity to flesh out your arguments in full in front of the arbitrator? Um, it's kind of an informal process, these oral hearings. Uh, typically, it's uh, a little bit loosey-goosey where the arbitrator is just going to let the parties go back and forth, shoot down each other's points, ask questions. Uh, it's really uh, somewhat of an informal process, but I don't know why you wouldn't give yourself the opportunity uh, to set forth your arguments in full in front of the arbitrator. So we talked earlier about the decision. Uh, they have to make their decision in writing within 30 days after completion of the hearing. Uh, that decision has to have a dollar amount of an award uh, or a denial of the claim. So either it's denied outright or they say how much the carrier has to pay. Uh, there are cases out there that awards that don't include that information are defective and subject to being vacated on appeal. Um, an award or a denial in full means the party that prevailed gets an award of fees as well. Uh, the arbitrator can also just apportion fees uh, as they see fit. Uh, frivolous controversy can lead up to a penalty of uh, $1,000. Uh, so you don't want to be objecting just for the sake of objecting. If it's payable, it's payable. Uh, within 15 days of an arbitrator's decision, you can serve a request for a reconsideration. Uh, that's going to cost you another $150. Uh, any opposition is due within 15 days of the request for reconsideration. Here's the bad news on that. It's going to be the same arbitrator making the decision. So you might be able to say, well, hey, you missed this uh, and you missed this and my counterpoint to your decision is this. Um, but good luck changing the mind of someone that sat through the oral hearing and put in all this work reviewing the hundreds of pages. Um, so it's not, typically you're not going to be able to avail yourself of uh, that request for reconsideration all that often. Awards and appeals. So awards have to be paid within 30 days after service of the decision. Um, appeals are governed by CPLR Article 75. Uh, they're going to be taking, taken to a uh, New York Supreme Court. So we're talking about a civil action and a uh, motion filing seeking to vacate the award. Uh, the application to vacate or modify has to be within 90 days after delivery of the decision. Uh, the most common ground to seek uh, a vacation of the award is CPLR 7511B3. Uh, the arbitrator exceeded his power uh, or so imperfectly executed it that a final and definite award upon the subject matter submitted was not made. Um, this is very, very, very difficult to do unless there is a clear abuse of discretion or uh, some kind of bias or, or something of that nature. Um, New York heavily, heavily favors alternative dispute resolution uh, and especially arbitration. Uh, a Supreme Court is going to be very reluctant to overturn these, but um, it, it you can prevail for some of the other uh, reasons we discussed earlier, such as a defective award 
or I mean, just the, the award makes absolutely no sense based on the workers' comp law. Uh, a modification is possible, as in like an adjusting of the dollar amounts, but it can't affect the merits as ruled upon by the arbitrator. So they can't say, well, the carrier's only half liable, so the award should be half of that. They can't do that. Uh, we're talking about mathematical or typographical errors here. <clears throat> so what are our important takeaways? Uh, finally, we're going to wrap this up. I appreciate all of you sitting through it. Um, never, ever, ever just pay the hemp one. I cannot stress that enough. Uh, you have objections. You have rights. Uh, they want you to just cut them a check. Do not do that. Take the time to look into it. Um, coordinate with your workers' comp claim defense, whether it's with counsel or not. Uh, maybe just talk to the handling adjuster, or uh, maybe you are the handling adjuster. Um, make sure you're synchronizing your efforts, because the actions in the workers' comp claim can have a drastic impact on your hemp on exposure. Um, what's a perfect example here? MG2 authorizations, where, you know, maybe the treatment's inconsistent with the guidelines, but, you know, the adjuster's not really on top of it, and they're just authorizing things over and over and over again, guess what? You just admitted you're liable for paying those. Um, or uh, potentially accepting an injury site without litigating it or digging into it, and, you know, you say, you know what, sure, we'll stipulate to accept the foot, and then meanwhile, you know, the foot was amputated a month earlier. Now, that's an extreme example, um, but it has happened where just sort of these willy-nilly stipulations in the comp case can have dire consequences. Uh, you can even identify a likely future HIMP-1. Um, what are we talking about here? Uh, you see the initial medicals in the board file, right? And uh, it says, claimant went to the ER on the date of loss and underwent a battery of diagnostic procedures. Uh, you never saw those. You never saw the bill for them. Uh, guess who probably did? Uh, the private health insurer. So you can identify that there's a HIMP-1 coming uh, and you can actually sort of build that into your uh, estimate of exposure. Uh, obviously, as your defense attorneys, we won't comment on reserves or anything of that nature, um, but it is something you can factor in. Um, here's another big one, because everyone who's dealing with workers' comp um, has some familiarity with uh, what your objections are gonna be anyway. And it's a good question to ask your attorneys if you're not sure. Uh, would I have a valid basis to object to this if the bill were ad addressed in front of the board? So think about it. If the treatments, if the payments in excess of the fee schedule, what would you do? You'd file a C8.4. Uh, what would you do if the treatment wasn't causally related? You'd file a C8.1B. Um, what would you do if uh, there wasn't a variance request? You would also deny the treatment. Um, so you're gonna, you'll notice that some of your objections to medical treatment under the workers' comp law align perfectly with those 6.4b specified objections. Uh, along that same line, know your medical treatment guidelines, including the new ones. Uh, this is a very strong argument you can make. Just note that for that objection to apply, the provider does have to be board authorized. You can do that provider search on the board's website. Uh, and the final thing to keep in mind is don't get strong-armed into paying the full amount. Your worst-case scenario is the fee schedule. Always run it for the fee schedule amount. Um, so it is very helpful to have your attorneys defending the comp case exposure and defending the hemp one all under one roof. It makes coordination much easier. Um, all right, let's get to our questions, see if we have any. All right, uh, so we have... Uh, question here, if the provider is not WCB authorized, 
and the treatment is not emergency care, are we required to reimburse uh, via the HEMP-1? If not, what objection would we use? Uh, so there isn't an objection based on the treating provider uh, not being a board authorized provider. Uh, that's not one we can actually get away with. Um, and the treatment is uh, not emergency care. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously if it's emergency care, it's uh, not gonna be subject to the guidelines. Um, unfortunately, uh, they don't want health insurers and carriers duking it out over treatment that is actually causally related. Uh, just based on a technicality that this isn't a board authorized provider. Uh, so there is no objection on that basis, unfortunately. Um, that being said, you can still review the treatment to make sure it's actually causally related uh, and still your liability is limited to the fee schedule uh, and you gotta make sure it's consistent with the MTGs and all of that other stuff. But uh, there is no objection just based on the fact that it's uh, not emergent treatment and um, that it's not a board authorized provider. Uh, does the health insurer have to submit copies of the bills with the hemp one? Oh, this is a this is a great question and a big sticking point in objections. Uh, your uh, our medical bill review company cannot review hemp ones for fee schedule. They require actual bills. Um, regretfully, the answer is no. Uh, they are not required to submit actual copies of the bills. Uh, and this has been flushed out over the course of um, hundreds of arbitration decisions. You're actually able to search and review the awards. Uh, basically, if they give you everything that's required in 6.3C uh, in their HIMP-1 demand, um, they've satisfied their obligation. And this is, uh, as we mentioned earlier, when it says, or other documentation supporting the request, they all hang their hat on that and they all give you their payment ledger. Um, now, this is where your opportunity to investigate really comes into play because you're allowed to demand the medical records from the provider. You're allowed to issue a subpoena if they don't provide them within 14 days. Uh, and this is your opportunity to get the actual, uh, you know, health insurance claim forms and the uh, actual bills. Uh, in that instance, if they don't give you the bills and you can't review for the fee schedule without them, I would absolutely write to the uh, person who signed off on the HEMP-1, say, hey, can you give me a 90-day extension? I'm gonna have to go and get some records here. Uh, again, they cannot unreasonably uh, refuse to grant you that extension. Uh, so I would absolutely recommend going ahead with the uh, extension request and then doing the investigation behind the scenes. Um, I would uh, definitely stick it to them though, if they don't give you literally every single thing required under 6.3C. Uh, and what I'm talking about there is a very popular one, like I mentioned earlier, is amounts paid is what they'll tell you, but they won't tell you what the amount billed was. Well, guess what? They're required under 6.3C to give you the amount charged by the providers. Uh, so you can stick it to them based on uh, you know, insufficient documentary evidence uh, based on a failure to include the information under 6.3C. Uh, I think it was just those two questions, um, but obviously uh, you know, uh, we do this all day long at LOIS. So if you ever have any additional questions, uh, you can feel free to contact me directly uh, or you can speak to the uh, handling comp attorney. And uh, I wanna thank you guys for sitting in on this. I know it was uh, rather long and uh, long-winded, um, but I hope it was helpful. And uh, I hope you'll uh, tune in for the Major Mondays webinar next month. <clears throat>